0: Isaiah chapter 50 is where we are this morning, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, there's somewhere along the row there that you can grab and use this morning. We are continuing our way through Isaiah. Um, as George uh, made a case for last week, these, this section um, is called the Servant Songs, and these Servant Songs, they're titled that because they point to Christ as the Servant of God. And, um, and it's not just that they point to Christ as the servant. He actually speaks in these songs that, that Christ himself, the pre-incarnate one, before his birth, is speaking to us as the servant of the Lord. It's part of the reason why I'm not a huge fan of the red letter Bible. Um, I, I have one. At, I have one right here. Um, but I think a little bit of a misconception happens when we think that Jesus only speaks in the New Testament. He's as well speaking in the Old. He's speaking in Isaiah, and not only is he the word of God, he speaks particularly as the servant in in these chapters that follow. Um, So uh, this is the servant song, the third servant song in this section. Uh, We had one in Isaiah 42 and 49, and now in 50 is the third one. So it's a little bit shorter than other chapters in Isaiah, so I will have you stand as we read this together. Hear God's word. Thus says the Lord Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves, with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down and torment. Thus ends uh, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless our time in your word this morning. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I had an interesting week, an unusual week. I was gone all week except for Wednesday. I had two retreats that I went on. I went on a pastor's retreat uh, the first half of the week, and then I went on a, mar- a marriage retreat the second half of the week. So This was the week of retreats for me. It was very different. For someone who's all, around their kids all the time, when you're gone for like a week from your kids, it's, it's kind of, you really, you really miss them. And I really did miss them this week, and it was good to be back with them. Um, but I, I love that uh, uh, George and the staff, we put on these retreats. These are really important for pastors to get away, have fellowship. And, um, and then the marriage retreat was a blessing, too. If we ever do one again, you guys should definitely make it a point to go on this on the marriage retreat. Um, but also, it was uh, interesting and a blessing to me and George. Uh, we had uh, Dan Flynn speak at the uh, pastor's retreat. Now, Dan is, was the director of of Campus Crusade for Christ at James Madison University where both George and I attended and where we both did crew with Dan as the director, about 15-year gap. And it's also where George and I, really uh, the Lord brought us back to faith in those days under Dan's influence. So really, we can kind of just give Dan the credit that George and I are even really in pastoral ministry to an extent. Um, it was, It's certainly God's working, but through Dan. Dan actually worshiped with us last Sunday. Um, so it was a blessing to have him. And um, he, he gave some great talks. Um, the one that stood out to me most, though, was when he um, unpacked the rich young ruler passage. And that's why I had George read it, and I, I thought it was applicable to our passage this morning in Isaiah. If you remember the rich young ruler, and this is one of the most fascinating stories, I think, conversations we see in the entire Gospels, in Jesus' ministry. Right? You have this young man who is wealthy. He's got everything. He's holy. He's, he's righteous. He, he's, he, he's been keeping the law his whole life. So he goes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I like the way Dan Flynn, he, he broke that up and, and really had us focus on each of those phrases. Good teacher. What does that mean? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we thought about it in those. Th- we broke it up in those three ways. And if you remember... How Jesus responded. He said, good teacher, why do you call me good? Isn't God, God is the only one who is good. And we talked about that and Dan talked about how, you know, at first it sounds like Jesus is not really affirming his, uh, his divinity, but really what he's doing is he's, he's trying to redefine goodness for the, for the young man. He's trying to get him to think, what is true goodness? Because underneath that statement, I think the, the rich young man is saying, I'm good, And I can strive to be like this good teacher. So he's he's kind of lowering the bar of what goodness is. But But Jesus is saying, no, God is the only one who is good. And then he says, what must I do? What must I do? Isn't that revealing about how he considered how to be saved? What must I do? It was all about his actions. It was all about his performance. And you know, that's the default of our hearts. All of our hearts we come out of the womb wanting to perform, to be accepted, wanting to do certain things to achieve salvation. That's in all of our hearts. And even even as believers, we have to push back against that. So he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Actually, after we talked about it, George made the point that perhaps he was saying with inherit, he was also saying maybe, how do I acquire eternal life? And I was looking up the word, and that actually, that's one of the meanings of the word. It's, it's how to acquire something. And remember, he's rich, so he's trying to purchase things, and he can purchase just about anything he wants. So maybe he could purchase and acquire eternal life. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, remember, he, he lists off uh, six commandments, and these are the latter six commandments of the, of the Ten Commandments. Right? Do not steal, do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. He lists all of these commands. And then um, he turns to the man and the man says, um, well, I've done all these my whole life. And Jesus, don't you, don't you love what he, he does here? The text says that he loved him. He looked at the, the young man and he loved him. Because I think he knew he was about to challenge him. He was about to get to the heart of what the issue was. That he was going to reveal really what this man worshipped. And it was money. He said, he said to the man, okay then, you've done all that. Now I want you to sell of everything you have. Don't keep the proceeds. Give it away. Give it to the poor. And what do we read that the man did? His face fell. He got discouraged because he had so much. And all of that is what he worshipped. And so Jesus was using this whole conversation to get to the man's heart. To say, you think it's what you can do to save yourself. It's think.'" You think it's what you can acquire to save yourself. But it's really what you worship. And you think you can do it, but you actually need to be rescued. So I kind of wanted to paraphrase or contrast what the rich young ruler was saying with what I think Jesus was sort of getting at. Where the ruler was saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus was really saying, poor sinner, look what I've done to rescue you forever. Poor sinner, look what I've done to rescue you forever. It was about rescue. And that's one point that Dan Flynn made that he loves to, you know, if if you could use one word for what the gospel is, it's rescue. It's rescue. That we need to be rescued. We need to be saved. The gospel is all about being rescued because we can't save ourselves. So I've only got two main points for you this morning. The first is that we, need, we are rescued by the obedience of Christ. And secondly, we are rescued by the light of the world. So obedience of Christ is what we're rescued by, and then the light of the world. So we're going to look at both of those in turn. Obedience first, because it comes first in our passage, and then the light of the world. But before I get there, I want to set up what we see in verses 1 and uh, 2. Verses 1 and 2, look back at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. You see, the point that God is making to Israel is that they have failed. They have truly failed, and they are, they are, they are covenant breakers. And they are going into exile. This is the consequence for their sin. But they're not ultimately going to be rejected by God. They're not going to be forsaken by God because of his covenant, because of his grace. But we do see that salvation requires faith. Salvation requires faith. They are in captivity not because God lacks power to save, but because they lack faith in him. He is not short on power, but they have been short on faith. And he says that God didn't leave Israel. Israel left him. You see what he's saying there with your mother's certificate of divorce? He's he's basically saying there are no receipts for this divorce. It's not official. I haven't totally abandoned you. Right? This isn't a a complete divorce. We are separated, though. They're in a separation, but not a divorce. Right, so there is no certificate of divorce, and there is no creditor to which he sold them to. But there is a separation, there is a consequence but he's going to bring them back. What he's saying is, I'm not fully rejecting you. I'm not fully pushing you away. But there is a separation. And he didn't leave Israel. They left him. And we see that exact phrasing. And if we go up to chapter 59 from 50, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 59 in Isaiah, it says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. That's in Isaiah 59. So it's not that God cannot hear, that He, that he cannot say, that His ear is dull. It's that sin separates us from God. There's a separation. And so when we think about our own lives and other people we love who aren't believers. God will never work powerfully in our lives to save us without faith and trust being evident in our lives. God just, he will not work unless faith and trust is there. We see interesting examples in the Gospels where Jesus could not do a miracle in certain places because they lacked faith. But there is an interesting dynamic that, that God requires there to be trust and faith for him to save But we would be uh, without hope if he didn't work in our hearts, wouldn't we? He's all-powerful. He can do all things. And thankfully, he grants faith in his children to trust and believe in him. Look at verses uh, 2 and 3 again. He says, Why when I came there was no man? Why when I called there was no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or or have I no power to deliver? Behold, Now, now he's about to show how powerful he is. By my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness. He's saying, I can do all of these amazing things and I can do whatever I want in any person. He's all powerful. He can do anything. And so what he's trying to get them to know is that their obedience is not enough to save them. In fact, the gospel says to you and I that our obedience is a hindrance. The rich young ruler's obedience was actually a hindrance. It was getting in the way of him seeing that he needed to be saved. We cannot bring anything to the gospel to be saved. It's only someone else's obedience in our place. So we must repudiate our attempts at obedience if you want to be saved. Now God is telling them that he hasn't rejected them, but that his mercy is more than the weight of their sins. But you might be asking a question here. How will a holy and just God dwell with a sinful, covenant-breaking people? How is that going to be possible? He's saying he, he will stay with them, he will forgive them. How? How will he remain just and holy? And you might be thinking for your own self, personally, this morning, why does God stick it out with me? Why does he stick it out with me? Why is he still with me? In the marriage retreat, um, I like Dan uh, Curley, who was teaching us, said, you know, Jesus is not a, a bad marriage. Jesus is in a bad marriage to the church, right? Because we're bad spouses. Why does Jesus stick it out with us? Why is he still with us? And that's what we see as the answer in the the following verses, that we are rescued by the obedience of Jesus. We're rescued by the obedience of Jesus. And here we see the voice of Jesus. We see the voice of the servant in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. So here we start to see something about Jesus, something good about his obedience for us. But, But before we jump in, you've got to know that Jesus was obedient for us. He was obedient in our place. Like the rich young man, we ask, what must I do? What must I do? And Jesus responds, look what I've done. What must I do? Jesus says, look what I've done. And we're going to look at obedience in two ways. Active obedience, that Jesus lived perfectly for us. That's what I mean by active obedience. And also passive obedience, that he suffered in our place for us. Those are the two main ways that we talk about Jesus' obedience, active and passive. We're going to see active first. Verses 4 and 5. Look at the word, he says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. This is the idea that Jesus was He lived perfectly for us, but He was trained as well. He was He was trained. And and what I mean by that is so we read in Luke two, verse forty, that the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. That's Luke two, forty. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And we'll read also in Luke 252. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How was God in need of training? Does that kind of blow your mind? That God needed to be trained? That he had to grow, that he had to learn. And why is that? Well, because Jesus was fully human. So just in the same way I see my kids learning how to read and write letters and put that all together, Jesus had to do the same thing. He had to learn how to read, just like any regular kid that he was trained he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor and then we read so in verse four that he had a tongue of those who are taught that he could speak well that he had a well-trained tongue and not just that he, he was eloquent or something like that but that his training was chiefly to help those who are weary look at verse four again that i may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary that the use, the use of Jesus' tongue was really to build up, to encourage, to lift burdens, those who were weary. And back in uh, Isaiah 42, we read, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. We read that in Matthew 12 as well. Think of Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is what Jesus came to do, to lift burdens. And think also just how, how wonderful it is to get an encouraging word from someone. Isn't that a blessing? Think about Proverbs 15, 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season. How good it is. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. Have you ever received a word of encouragement from someone that was really like balm to your soul? Balm to your weary soul? You needed that word of encouragement. Was it a text? Was it a letter? Was it a conversation? I can think back actually to a couple of years ago. Actually the first two years in ministry and, and George and I went off to a pastor's retreat out in Richmond. It's a, it was a regional one in Virginia. And um, I think just being a new pastor and just kind of being uh, seeing my lack of competence and skill set, but knowing I needed to grow a lot, I was kind of feeling discouraged about just my own skills and abilities. And I remember talking to a pastor in our our presbytery, Jack Jack Howell at Trinity, and I just kind of told him a few things how I was struggling, and he just had the right word for me at that moment. And it was a blessing to me. He just said, and he got to my identity in Christ really quickly, which he's good at doing. He just said, like, because of Jesus, God is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. And that's it. That's all you need to know, that he is pleased with you. He's happy with you. He's happy with every little effort we make as his children. Just, just like when you, if you have kids, you're pleased with any little effort that they put forward. You know it's not perfect. You know they're not going to be amazing in their obedience to you. But you want to see positive effort, even if it's meager. And, and God's the same way with us. And so I really needed to hear that word and it was a blessing to me to hear that. And, and so how are we doing that to each other? Are we, do, you, do you do that for other people? Have you had that done for yourself? Jesus was the perfect one who did that. Always had the perfect word for people. He also had a well-listening ear. Look at verse 4 and 5. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Jesus listened to God, his Father, every morning. Every morning he woke up and he listened to the Father. He read the Word. He studied the Old Testament. He knew it. He he probably memorized the Old Testament. He listened to his Father in prayer. He listened to him as he spoke to him. And it makes me think, what is the first voice you listen to in the morning? When you wake up, what do you go to? Are you listening to the Father? Are you going to Him in prayer? Are you listening to His Word? If you, have, if you want a well-trained ear and a well-trained mouth, and you want to be grow, if you want to grow in your holiness, if you want to grow in knowing Jesus better, are you spending time with Him? Are you listening to Him? Morning by morning. He opened his ear to hear the word, the word of his father. He trained himself to hear his father's voice. And it takes work. I'm not saying this is going to be easy. It takes work to do. That. It takes discipline. But are we putting in the work? Are you putting in the work? His ears were opened. And it wasn't just to hear and grow intellectually. It was to be obedient. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord opened my ear. I was not rebellious to that word. I turned not backward. God's word ought to lead us to obedience and action. Be doers of the word, James says in chapter 1, James 1, 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Jesus spoke well. He listened well. He did it perfectly. And when I say actively, he was actively obedient for us. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. Every day of his life, every single day, he was perfect in what he did. And it was for you. But he also suffered for us. And that's this, the second way, his passive obedience. That's what we see beginning in verse 6. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Here, obviously, it's almost like in these chapters we are walking towards Jerusalem. It's almost like we are on the pathway to the cross. Right, because we'll read in chapter 53 in a couple of weeks that he bore our sins. That he bore our iniquities. So that's actually taking us to the cross. This is leading us to the suffering of Jesus. Here in uh, Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. In Mark 14, we read the actual flogging scene, right? In the trial, that some spit, spit on him. And to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows, referring to the flogging that he was undergoing. So Jesus suffered for us. He really Painfully suffered for us. Matthew twenty six, sixty-seven, they spit on his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? He suffered for us. And you know what? He also suffered physical pain, but he also suffered in shame as well. Do you know the, the crucifixion, crucifixion in those days was really meant to shame the person? It was meant to humiliate the person. Most of the time, uh, people who were crucified were naked. We're not sure if Jesus was or not, but most of the time they were to shame them. Most of the time they weren't even that high off the ground. They were pretty low toward the ground so people could look at them, spit at them, and mock them. Um, Sam Storms writes this about shame, that Jesus bore our shame. He says, worse than the pain of the cross was the shame of the cross, In 1 Corinthians 1, why does Paul refer to the cross as foolishness and a stumbling block? It isn't because the concept of, or practice of crucifixion was intellectually incoherent, like 2 plus 2 is 5, or illogical. Rather, the message of salvation through faith in a crucified Savior was deemed foolishness and a stumbling block because the cross was itself the embodiment and emblem of the most hideous of human obscenities. The cross was a symbol of reproach, degradation, humiliation, and disgust. It was aesthetically repugnant. In a word, the cross was obscene. The cross was far more than an instrument of capital punishment. It was a public symbol of indecency and social indignity. Crucifixion was designed to do more than merely kill a man or woman. Its purpose was to humiliate him as well. The cross was intended not only to break a man's body, but also to crush and defame his spirit. There were certainly more efficient means of execution, stoning, decapitation. Crucifixion was used to humiliate as well as harm. And so we talked about the, why is the cross offensive and why does Paul say it's offensive. Th- thus the offense of the cross does not come from the fact that it is theologically incoherent or intellectually illogical or legally impermissible. The offense of the cross came from the fact that the cross itself, a visible symbol and physical embodiment of moral shame and repugnance, was the instrument of death for him who claimed to be the Messiah and Savior. This explains why Paul was himself so horribly mistreated and scorned when he preached the gospel. In sum, Jesus died not only for the guilt of our sins, but also for the shame of our sins. That shame that we feel in our own sin, Jesus took that upon himself. When he was mocked, when he was beaten, when he was spit upon, he bore that for us. And notice in our passage not only the actions that happened to him, but notice the willingness of Jesus to be mocked and beaten. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull the it. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus willingly gave over himself to the beating he didn't deserve. He he dedicated this task of suffering for his people in mind and body. In short, the obedience that Jesus undertook was voluntary. He chose to do this. Remember in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I've received from my Father. Uh, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible to our kids, and one of my favorite parts is when Jesus is on the cross, and it talks about what, really what held Jesus on the cross. So it says here, They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called if you were really the Son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop. Like when he healed the little girl, stilled the storm, fed the 5,000 people, but Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face, the face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. Not bad for a children's book. You see, love held him up there. The nails, of course, did, but the love that he had for his people held him up there. And you know, beyond the the love and and beyond the the physical pain, the intense pain, the worst part was that last part I just read, that the, the, the Father's face turned from Jesus, that covenant curses fell upon Him for us. He was rejected by God. But He did it for us. He did it so we might be accepted. He did it so that we might be brought in. Isn't that the amazing thing of the cross? And we see in verses 7 through 9 of our chapter here that Jesus knows he will be vindicated when he goes through this. He knows he will be judged rightly. But the Lord God helps me, he says. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He he who vindicates me is near. He knew he was going to be vindicated, and he was vindicated. And what I, what I find fascinating is in Matthew 27, he was actually declared righteous by a, a Roman centurion after the crucifixion. It says in verse 54 of Matthew 27, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Right? So after it is finished, they realize what they've done. And they realized that he truly was what he said he was. And so what's amazing about the gospel is that Jesus' obedience becomes our righteousness by faith. This This is what we mean when we say the gospel is a gift, that you can't earn it. It's a gift, something to be given to you because it's a righteousness, not our own, that saves us. It's not your righteousness. It's not how good you are, but it's how good God's been and is for you. And in Isaiah 61... Is there's this beautiful picture of being clothed with that righteousness. That it's not yours. It says in uh, chapter 61 of Isaiah, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. See, we are covered. If you trust in Christ today, you are blanketed. You are covered in the robe of righteousness that Jesus earned for you through his his active and his passive obedience. So we're rescued by the obedience of Christ. We're also rescued by the light of the world. That's my second point. Rescued by the light of the world. Look at verse 10 and following. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. I'm reminded also of uh, Isaiah 9, that people in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah 2, verse 5, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. But this is kind of confusing. Look at verse 10 again. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord. There's a contrast between those who are in darkness and have the Lord and those who are in the light but have their own torches. They're the ones carrying their light. It's not God's light. It's their own torch. He's saying those who trust in the Lord are actually walking in darkness. It's a little bit confusing, especially when you compare it to John 8, who says that whoever follows me will walk in light and not darkness. So there's a difference in terms of what we're talking about, darkness here. And the truth is that God's people are to walk in dark valleys. But the awesome blessing is that we're not alone. That many times in the Christian life, we're in valleys, we're in darkness. We can't see where we're going, but we're with the Lord. In the darkness, what's so scary about the darkness is you don't know what's out there. I don't know if any of you as a kid were, were, were scared of the darkness, were scared of dark. I, uh, we had this basement in our house that had, it was a large basement. It kind of went, you know, from the stage all the way back to the door there. And it was just a, kind of a big hallway and no lights, no, no windows or anything. So when you turn off the lights, it is pitch black like a cave. And my sister may have one time ran out and turned all the lights off and I had to sort of, you know, feel my way out of there and scarred me for life, maybe. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, maybe ever since then, though, I do remember sort of as I'm leaving the basement, hit flicking the light, just kind of glancing behind you as I'm trying to walk, and then by the time I get to the end, I'm, I'm running to get out of there as I look back, because darkness is it's scary. It's the fear of the unknown, right? What's back there? And I also remember telling my parents to leave my door just a little bit cracked so the hallway light will come through into the bedroom and I would negotiate with how much that door needed to be uh, larger or the gap needed to be larger. And um, so, so it's, it's built into us a little bit there to be, to be scared of the darkness. And in the darkness, as a believer, you, you can't really be guided by your own senses. That's what he's telling us. Don't be guided by your your own means to illuminate your world. You have to trust someone else to to guide you. You have to trust the Lord to guide you. And trying to generate light for yourself while dealing with life's dark experiences only leads in torment. You know, the rich young ruler was trying to generate light for himself in the darkness. He was trying to create his own torch. And it manifested itself in his own performance. To inherit eternal life, his own performance was his light. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the light he wanted to walk by. What kind of false lights are you walking with? What are you hearing that gives that gives you false hope? That's trying to trick you and deceive you into not trusting the Lord, because He's telling us to, to have faith, to trust in Him. That yes, this may be a shadowy life. This. This may be dark. We don't see the full picture. We're not in glory. We're not in heaven yet. But walk with me. That's what he's saying. Trust me. He will be your light. And so what does it take to walk in the dark? Well, for one, it takes courage. It takes courage. So ask God to give you courage to, to do this. And, 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 the, and the most important place we get that courage is looking at Jesus who walked through the darkness for us. That he, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that, that he lived a perfect life and that he walks, with he walks with us even now. Our courage comes from our rescue, to say it in a short way, which is provided by the perfect obedience of Jesus in our place. Now I'll go back to, to how I started. God calls us to find our rescue in the light of the obedience of Christ. I'm going to close with this final story. Um, J. Gresham Machen was a... Um, one of the greatest New Testament scholars, Reformed New Testament scholars. Uh, he started, helped start the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He started Westminster Theological Seminary. Before that, he was a, uh, a Princeton professor. And um, just one of the great New Testament scholars. Um, and towards the end of his life, he was helping to plant churches and uh, dismissing his doctor's orders. Um, Michael Horton tells the story of Machen um, beaten down by his career, of struggling for the faith even within his own communion, kept his commitments to a small circle of OPC churches in South Dakota. He says, I have too much to do, he insisted, as his chest was then even tight with pneumonia. And the next day, however, Machen was hospitalized. And on New Year's Eve, the host pastor of those churches visited his, this infamous opponent of liberalism on his deathbed, and the elder statesman related a dream he'd enjoyed that made him long for heaven, Sam, it was glorious, it was glorious, he said. Sam, isn't the Reformed faith grand? And just before he passed into the next world, Machen dictated a telegram to John Murray, another great New Testament systematic theologian at Westminster. He said these words, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. He understood that without Jesus' obedience, that he was without hope. And that's the same place that you and I are in. Without Christ's obedience, we are lost. Horton finishes this story by saying, Finally, it's good to know, especially when facing the next world, that for every time we fail to conform to God's will in thought, word, and deed by actively sinning or failing to conform to his will, his Son has fulfilled the obedience that we owe By never once giving in to the lust, pride, sloth, greed, selfishness, and malice that are so often allowed space in our overcrowded hearts. Jesus Christ becomes our Savior, not only in His atoning death, but throughout His life. In this way, every day of His life was as necessary for our salvation as that dark afternoon on Golgotha. He was the only fully surrendered, victorious, sold-out Christian who ever lived, our surrender is half-hearted and partial. Our victories seem always to be sullied by pride. Even if we could live the quote-unquote higher life, could God not smell our smugness? Wouldn't our best works be sabotaged by our own depravity? These good works would be corrupt enough to condemn us on the last day. So what we require is the obedience of someone else to stand in for us. It's, the on, it's only Christ's atoning death but his saving life during the 33 years of his conformity to the Father's will. This is why, wrote Charles Hodge, the believer when arrayed in this righteousness need fear neither death nor hell. This is the reason why Paul challenges the universe to lay anything to the charge of God's elect. May we proclaim this hope while we have breath, and then may it find its way to the center of our vision when God calls us home. For it is the only reason... We will hear those welcome words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to know the finished, complete, perfect work of Jesus on our behalf. We are lost without it. We have no hope without it. But our salvation is complete. It gives us freedom, it gives us joy, it moves us to praise. As we contemplate your word this morning, would it lead us to praise? Would it lead us to worship? For you've done all things perfect. You've done all things well. Encourage our hearts. Lift us up. Save us. For those who do not know this, this goodness, do not know this obedience that Jesus offers, this free gift of salvation, would you save them and bring them to a the knowledge of the grace we have in him. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.